0: You're fed up with a nine-to-five, you've been working hard for years, and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career, but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. Enjoy the show.
1: Hello, everyone. Today on the Business Breaks podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Adam Shilton, a visionary thought leader who's leveraging AI to transform the finance function. Now, Adam is the founder at Tech for Finance, as well as a senior business consultant for Think. He possesses a unique blend of talents from being a a musician, AI enthusiast, as well as a growing influencer. On LinkedIn and in the podcasting world. Now, his journey from music to mastering AI in finance showcases a rare combination of creativity and technical acumen. As a LinkedIn luminary, Adam shares his insights, engaging a wide audience with his innovative approaches to AI in finance. His podcast echoes this expertise, making complex concepts accessible and exciting. So join us to discover how Adam harmonizes his musical background with cutting edge AI to strike a chord in the finance function. Adam, welcome to Business Breaks.
0: What an amazing intro. (laughs) 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 No, fabulous. Strike a chord. Yeah, I'll give you some points for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought it would be very subtle, but you picked up on it. No flies on you, mate.
0: (laughs) No, thanks so, so much. It's great to be here.
1: Oh, pleasure so Adam, to start off with, can you share your journey with us from the world of music to the realm of finance and technology, and also how has your musical background influenced your approach in the tech space it's a
0: really good question, and I remember a podcast that I had a while back with with Anders you know Anders Lou Lindbergh, and he was one of the first to try and sort of tease out you know. Why music, and then why finance? But but you didn't ask me how it has influenced. I guess what I'm doing now, and I suppose there's there's two sides to it. So there's there's the community aspect of music, being with others, sharing ideas, and working together to you know build a piece of music or, or compose a piece of music. But then there's the more te- technical aspect of it. Because my degree's in music production, not music performance. Yeah, so so I am a performer. I play instruments. I enjoy doing that. I've played in bands in a previous life but the bulk of my study was actually on the technical side of things in terms of mic setup, using systems like Logic and Pro Tools to do multi-track recordings, using all the gear, You know, sometimes going out to live venues and try and make sure that we get decent quality recording, even in really terrible sound environments. So there's quite a lot of variables that you've got to understand within music, not just from a production point of view, but also from recording and, and capturing. I've never really thought about it before, but producing a piece of music or recording a live show is a project just the same as any other project. You've got to think of it in terms of structure, you've got to think of it in terms of order, and then you've got to think of it in terms of quality of output. And the first project that I ever did was with my first Originals band. So I was in an Iron Maiden tribute band. That was my, that was my first band <laughs> uh, many years ago. Die Hard Metalhead always will be. Um, so so that was fun but I didn't do any recordings just performing right but then I remember when I ended up sort of moving into sixth form I ended up in a band called Rosewood and it had sort of a, a female singer and then a couple of guitars doing sort of the dual guitar harmonies and all of that sort of stuff and we had an absolute ball you know we played all over Cambridge we did some competitions and that was great but I really wanted to record us so with the, the help of my dad I got uh, an Avid 11 rackets in the loft now because I've got two kids I don't really get much time to report. But I thought I need to capture this as my gap year project. So I was working in a, in a warehouse, actually machining warehouse widgets and then in the evening I was producing music. yeah and that was I guess my first passion project of putting something together from its component parts. And because I really enjoyed that, obviously that translated into moving into the music production side of things at university. But again, it was a whole new level. You know, the the quality of the production that I managed to achieve, you know, on my own without really much guidance was nothing compared to what I could then achieve with the new kit that I had in the university studio, for example. But the projects became bigger. You know, I wasn't recording myself in a band that I knew, I was re- recording others. You know, which was difficult, you know, because if you're doing the recording and the production, you've got to get used to the personalities of the recording. You've got to understand what people do and don't like, you know, so oh, you know, the, the drums are way too heavy in that mix. You need to you need to pull it down and all that sort of stuff. So that took me from sort of quite an isolated, introverted approach to music production to actually producing as part of a group. But then moving away from from music, my first job was in sales. I sold houses. So I went from from uni producing music to then selling houses but immediately sort of understood that I wasn't going to be selling houses forever in a day and I got approached for an opportunity in in tech which was for a Microsoft partner at the time and I thought right well you know music tech like business tech you know mm-hmm. there, there's probably some some synergy there so I moved in you know at first job called call in and I worked for, for different companies selling different types of software. So I moved into sort of energy management, then construction management, and then even agritech, worked for an agritech business for a while. Again, we won't get too much into the weeds there. But I suppose the theme throughout all of that was going from me in isolation to then, I guess, helping others with my expertise. Yeah. And when you think in terms of software, I mean, the software you use to produce music has buttons and a function and output and all of that sort of stuff. And it's exactly the same to, to the buttons in an ERP system. The, the end goals are just the same. So as soon as you start thinking in terms of systems and frameworks, you've kind of got the hang of it, right? You know, I've always loved to demo software, you know, and that's that's what really came out when I started moving into the finance and software ERP space. You know, so I guess the elements of my music background that have supported that is the ability to engage with an audience and really understand what people want from a solution, whether the solution is a produced track or the solution is an ERP system, right? And deliver it to the point where everybody's happy. Yeah. And that's the difficult bit. You know, anybody can give a software demo, but not everybody can actually match the demo to the ambitions to overcome the challenges that a business is is facing. Mm-hmm. And from there, at the core of all the RP systems and finance systems is obviously a finance team, you know, and they've always had a bad rap of being, you know, st- stuck in, the, you know, stuck in the past, you know, all of this manual intervention, messing around with data, import, export, all of that sort of stuff. And no sooner are we getting to the point where finance teams are moving from legacy on-premise systems into the cloud that we've not got, now got the advent of all of this new gener- generative AI stuff. You know, so the pace of change is really tricky at the moment because some businesses aren't even at the point of being able to automate their processes, let alone overlay AI on top of that, right? So yeah. change that I've seen just in the few short years that I've been doing this, probably coming up to nine years now that I've been working in the tech space has been you know, absolutely ridiculous, but that's where the finance focus came from. Finance sat at the core of all of the software-related projects I'd ever been involved in, so that's when I decided, right, well, I'll continue to try and help. I'll start posting more content. I'll start a podcast because I've always listened to podcasts, love podcasts, so it's that itch that I needed to scratch. And it, and it's going okay, you know, half-decent following, um, some, some really nice stats, not massive stats, but some really nice stats from, from the podcast last year. Um, so I'll just I'll continue doing what I'm doing. So a long roundabout way of trying to explain how music turned into finance and AI focus, but hopefully that that kind of makes sense.
1: does completely. And um, it's nice uh, you leverage your transferable skill set from music and then mu- technology to augment your musical output mm-hmm. to technology across a number of different domains before settling and landing on finance, which is great because, as you say, there's opportunity to help certain functions that are stuck in the weeds, that are thinking, well, not beyond their immediate task, but <laughs> but then seeing that, yeah, if you can get your data in one place, like an ERP system, there's so much more you can do with it yeah. beyond just processing transactions. So, yeah, you've... Sounds like it's it's kind of been a nice and these paths are never easy. There's a story underneath a story, but unfortunately we've only got about an hour. So but yeah, it's it's really cool. And I can see how how your how your story has been one of adaptation as well as orchestrating different teams, whether they're a band, IT deployment team, or even a finance team. So yeah, brilliant. And um, you've answered my second question about what sparked your interest in finance technology. So I think we'll move on to AI. And how are you leveraging AI to innovate in finance? Do you have some interesting examples, no doubt? Yeah, and and
0: it's been interesting because, and I guess it's worth just differentiating between AI before November twenty two. And then AR, AI, AI after with the advent of Chat GPT, right? Because AI is not new. It's really not new. You know, so so when you look at base level of intelligence, machine learning, and all of the algorithms that sit alongside that, they've been built into plenty of platforms for, for years. Yeah. Whether it's a data analysis platform that's looking over historical data and trying to do predictions, you know, that predictive analysis, that's that's been available for quite some time. And also having an element of machine learning built into finance systems again is not new. You know, you've been able to chart outliers and sort of condense month-end close activities by being able to hone in on the the stuff that warrants your attention without having to go through all of your journals and, you know, go through that that massive correction exercise. So so that's that's not new. But what's new is the generative piece, i.e., that the AI that doesn't just analyze past data and try and predict the future or at least highlight the anomalies for correction is its ability to generate something new Uh, hence the generative in in generative ai now the tricky bit with all of this is is it new (laughs) not really you know i had glenn hopper who's somebody you need to follow, sort of an AI and finance visionary, visionary a lot of inspiration for me, originally introduced by Paul Paul Barnast, who does uh, fp today. So th- those two have been very influential on, on me. But I remember when he came on the podcast, he always referred to at least the first wave of generative AI as predictive text. Yeah. So to use his analogy, you know, when you first got, you know, the the brick mobile phones, you know, and and texting became more popular. And then, you know, everybody went mad because predictive text would finish a word for you you know that is kind of what generative ai is doing but on a new level yeah because it's looking to the output you are requesting and trying to predict what that is from the data that it's trained on right so it's essentially saying from my training more often than not when somebody asks this or somebody wants this then the output is this yeah so that's again oversimplifying everything maybe not a good explanation but you know, one that I always use when I think about generative AI. And that's why I say, is it creating something new or is it just producing something from its training model? And the answer is, it is just producing uh, the highest probability output from its training model. But because it's speaking like a human and with Chat GPT, because it, you know, it generates, it doesn't just appear, it generates. It gives that impression that you're actually talking to something that's intelligent, which it is. But it's not artificial general intelligence. We can get in that into that a little bit later if if you want to. But nevertheless, it gives us a lot of power because we have a model that is trained on a vast amount of data that we cannot fit in our own heads that we can use to produce stuff quicker than we've able been able to produce stuff quicker than we've able been able. Deary me, not enough coffee today, right? To produce (laughs) that we've never been able to produce as quickly before, even if our expertise is outside that. So everybody always goes straight to code, right? I'm not, I'm not a developer, but I can be a developer because AI is going to tell me how to code. Yes and no. (laughs) But when when you look at some of the, I guess the, the use cases and the way that I'm using it at the moment is to get a better starting point faster. Yeah, so if I'm producing process documentation, for example, and I want a template, you know, I can just ask AI and it will produce a, a reasonable template that I can then tweak and make sure that it's fit for purpose. Yeah, moving into to the finance space, historically, AI wasn't very good with numbers. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so and and um, it wasn't ever this bad, I don't think. But you know, it was very much a case of it thinking that two plus two equals five. You know, it, the the original versions were really good at just simple arithmetic. Before you had these platforms such as ChatGPT Pro that now have Python data analysis built into them, so that they can do those calculations more correctly in terms of other use cases obviously manipulating spreadsheets understanding formulas producing code to be able to do sales forecasting based on whatever algorithm you choose you know that there, there's a lot there but going back to your your question about how i personally use it it's for inspiration it's to give me a quicker starting point and it supplements my day-to-day work as almost like a virtual assistant yeah so so when i think of leverage now um there's only a few forms of leverage obviously money people or technology yeah now previously you'd have to outsource you know data entry activities to a person you still do if it's a complex data task or something like that but more and more now with these new tools you can start offloading some of your activity to ai and that's why i see ai at least for me personally right now as more of a virtual assistant than something that's going to solve all of my problems for me don't know whether that answers your question
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And um, as you say, it's nothing new. We've had Siri for years now, and even Alexa, right? Yeah. So those things are available. And even in terms of generative text, there was, um, was it Ask Jarvis? So Uh it was just prohibitively expensive Hmm. up until, yeah, ChatGPT came along and kind of changed the game by making it more democratized so mm-hmm. people can set up free accounts and start playing around with it immediately mm-hmm. and before even considering to upgrade to the uh, to the uh, $20 a month or whatever it is, plus that. You're
0: 100% sure I'm not affiliated with OpenAI. I don't get a kickback for saying that, but the use cases for the paid versions of AI are exponentially mm. more than
1: what you can do with the free tool. Yeah, makes sense, and yeah, I mean it's all about a democratization and B, where where you've actually caught it and where I think it is going, is that you know Microsoft call it a copilot, mm-hmm. and it is a copilot. It works with you as mm-hmm. your digital assistant, and the technology is democratized. I've saw, you've probably seen this on uh, Twitter. Someone tweeted in February. And English is now a coding language. Was so. <laughs> so, I think, yeah, yeah. 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 So, sorry. But the thing that I will say is,
0: and, and I've been doing um, a bit of a comparison recently between different large language models. Um, so I'm now part of the AI Finance Club, um, which was launched by uh, Nicolas Boucher. Again, somebody you should definitely follow. He really started pushing the way for ChatGPT for finance. But now we've got a bit of a community whereby, you know, we release newsletters and we sort of share insights. And what I'm working on at the moment for a newsletter that's hopefully going to come up pretty soon is a comparison of these large language models. I'll get a little bit into the weeds and you can tell me off if I'm going too too deep. Oh, uh, but the one thing to start by saying is there's a difference between the platform that you use to talk to an AI and the actual large language model AI itself. So start off with, if you look at ChatGPT, ChatGPT allows you to talk to two different models right now. Yeah, so the free version allows you to speak to the large language model GPT 3.5 and the paid Mm -hmm. version allows you to speak to GPT 4. Now, there's some other witchcraft that happens to allow you to do other stuff in the paid version. So I said previously, you've got that data analysis that can actually use Python code to actually generate documents. So you can generate a spreadsheet, you can generate a Word document and all that sort of stuff. But either way, you are interfacing with an AI through a platform, which is a chat interface. Yeah. So both of those models are optimized for chat. So when you type in a text or you upload a picture, if it's a multimodal version, as Bard with Gemini Bro is now, you're speaking to a version of a large language model. Now there's loads. <laughs> there are loads of large language models. It's just that OpenAI and ChatGPT has the lion's share of the market right now. Who knows where it's going to go? Microsoft provide a platform to access those same models. It's just optimized in a slightly different way, right? So Bing Chat uses the OpenAI large language models in the background, but it's optimized for web search. Yeah. Copilot, as you've mentioned, Dante, isn't available in the mainstream to everybody yet. Hopefully it will be soon. But larger enterprises that are able to use Copilot are using a version that is optimized to help with Word documents, to help with Excel documents, to help with PowerPoint, you know, and all of those sorts of things. So you are chatting with models, but they are optimized for each use case. Now, moving away from OpenAI, you've got Anthropic, who now have Claude and Claude 2.1, which is the most advanced model with a massive token window. So you can understand really large documents if you want to upload those and query those. You've got um, the Llama models from Meta, the same guys as, as Facebook. They've got their own model. You've now got MixTral, M I X T R A L, which is developed by a company called Mistral, M I S T R A L, just to make things really clear, a French company but seen some impressive results from that. Um, and the platform that you can use to access those, you can use something like a po, PoE, you know, so you can create your own bots, but you can also talk to all sorts of different models. Bard, obviously the Google platform accesses the Gemini Pro model, it used to be the Palm 2 model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I just wanted to say that because people immediately think when you start talking about generative AI, that it's all about ChatGPT but it's not. There are multiple models that are optimized for different purposes that you can use in different ways, access through different platforms. Yeah. ChatGPT yeah. is the easiest to access. Yeah. You can use Po, You can use Hugging Chat, which is developed by Hugging Face. I'm sure you're familiar with, with Hugging Face, Dante. Uh, and then you've also got some new contenders as well. I think there's a, another one that's come out recently called Anakin.ai or something like that. And again, you can, you can use multiple models within the one platform. So you can immediately expand your access to AI for different use cases. So the newsletter is a comparison between all of those to see how they function with different types of tasks. So very simply text generation and templates, moving on to more complex stuff like scenario planning, decision support, moving into Excel and formula troubleshooting, moving all the way into advanced coding for forecasting. So what we'll find is all of these models evolve is that I think we'll see more narrow use cases for these different language models. So it's not all going to be about ChatGPT. It's going to be in the same as we pick different podcast platforms, as we pick different finance software, we will be picking the AIs that are most suitable for the functions that we want them to carry out.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess for finance people who might not be on that journey yet Mm -hmm. and they're trying to merge their passion for finance with the technology that is available now, what advice would you give to improve enhance their career?
0: Uh, career or day to day? I suppose they're they're linked. I they're guess. kind of linked. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so so if we split split into so I'll I'll start with the day to day, and then we'll move into I guess career. So day to day finance, you know the the challenges are repeat work, not being able to get insights from data. Quick enough, you know, having to generate complex presentations with a load of data that takes you ages to sift through, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So, the more of that stuff that is boring and unuseful, we can outsource to AI or automate, the better. Right? Automation is not a new thing. You know, rep- robotic process automation. You know, simple example like VBA scripts for you know working with spreadsheets, all that sort of stuff. That's that's not new stuff, but obviously generative AI is. So, in terms of day to day, if you are putting reports together, or if you are wanting to glean more insights from data, then generative AI can be a mechanism to speed up that process. I've mentioned on previous podcasts Notable, which is a Jupyter notebook, similar to Google Colab, that you can change to chat GPT, upload your data and start producing visualizations and all that sort of stuff. So there are lots of ways that finance can speed up their day to day by using AI in these different use cases. Just be careful though, because some businesses have policies at the moment around AI. Um, not all due to data protection. Some companies are just saying, "Look, you know, we just we don't want to use it because there's there's too many unknowns." Still, I guess what I'm saying is, is ask permission especially if you start using company data, which you shouldn't really be feeding into an AI anywhere unless it's behind a, a wall and you've got your own AI within your own tenant. Not many companies do. It's a challenge at the moment for, for many people is, you know, how do they get the AI behind their, their firewall, as it were. Um, so that's, that's some of the day-to-day stuff. But I'll pinch the recommendations that Nicolas gave me on the last podcast in terms of how to work out what to use and when. And it's a bit of a pain to do, but it's definitely worth it, is think about the tasks that you do on a day-to-day basis and map as many of them as you can, yeah? So all of your month-end processes, all of the time you spend using Excel to produce reports and insights and all of that sort of stuff, and try and produce as much of a list as you can of the stuff that you do, and then try and work out what elements of that you think you can speed up. And maybe take a really simple example to, to begin with, right? You know? A simple example could be, right, well, I've got three spreadsheets that I always end up merging into one, but I've got to mess around with columns, I've got to split out the dates and all that sort of stuff. And it takes me, you know, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes to do that I could do without. It's not a massive amount of time, but it's still time that I've consumed, right? You know, and instead, right, well, Upload to ChatGPT, you know, merge these three into one for me. You know, that's that's a very simple example of something that could take away thirty minutes worth of work. But once you start doing that, you'll then start to see some of the other things that you can start doing to to claim back some of that time. But obviously, that's from a time perspective. The insights piece is slightly different. Notable is one example, but probably too complicated to explain all of the different ways that you can use AI to produce better insights from data on this discussion. But then, if we move into your question about how can they leverage it to advance their careers it's a little bit more of a tricky question to answer so I've had previous podcast guests that have said that a great way to advance your career is to seek out tech implementation projects because if you can say I've implemented this ERP system or I've implemented this FPNA tool or I've, in- I've in- implemented this analytics tool You've, that's another notch on your belt to say, look, I've done this. I understand the process, completed that project. It was a success. And that then potentially makes you more employable to the next company that may not have gone through that transformation yet. Yeah. So I guess that's one tech specific means of you being able to advance your career. If you've done it with AI. So if you, if you can say I managed to have some sort of generative AI methodology built into our finance process whereby X amount of our workflow was automated with generative AI, but we still had to do this manually because the technology wasn't there. Yet. Absolutely fine. You've then got another tick on against your name that says they're already using generative AI to start trying to automate or speed up processes within their department. Yeah, And then the third piece, and it's quite funny actually, the, the stats from my podcast for last year highlighted one episode that was loosely related to tech, but not really. How to create impact as a finance business partner. Second ever podcast with Christian Franz Hansen at the, the Business Partnering Institute. Best performing episode of 2023, even though it was released in 2022, right? You know, obviously it's it's got extra points because it was one of the first episodes, but business partnering is one of those things that's never going to go away, Because as soon as you start mastering the tech, the next thing you then need to master is the emotional intelligence part of the role. You know, how can you build influence? You know, how how can I win hearts and minds? You know, all of that sort of stuff. Now, some of it comes with time and it's difficult, especially if you're introverted. Yeah, and I consider myself a a bit of introvert. doesn't look like it, you know, because when I get going, I do like to talk. But the reason I know I'm an introvert and I use, I think it was the party analysis on the Tim Ferriss podcast from from, from ages ago. Is that extroverts at a party are energized? Yeah, you know, they speak to everybody. You know, they don't ever want to leave the party. You know, they'll keep going till three, three, uh, two three a.m. in the, in the morning. Whereas an introvert might be happy going to a party, but they find it fatiguing. Yeah, so they might enjoy the conversations, but when it comes to midnight, they might be absolutely exhausted. And I fall into that category, right? So there is no reason why you can't build extroversion into your skill set it might just be that you've got a limited window to be able to be an extrovert so pick battles w- wisely right but ai in those instances can help us with soft skills because in the same way you can ask chat gpt to provide a template or an ai to provide a template for a document you can also give it examples of maybe meetings that could have gone better or difficult conversations you've had or tips to improve active listening, you know, all of those sorts of things. You can use it as a coach for those softer skills to build those business partnering skills. You know, so without getting too meta, we're kind of into that metacognition, meta-analysis phase, where we can almost have a version of ourselves that's challenging us to build those soft skills that help us build that influence as, as business partners. And they are going to be the elements that build your career. Now, there's an argument to say that, well, just read a book about it, right? And you can do but it's maybe not as instant. you know and now with the advent of gpts and bots you can now instruct a bot to say you are an expert in soft skills or you're an expert in coaching finance business partners you know when asked a question please provide a response in this way that is you know usable in terms of Conducting better meetings or building influence with tricky characters, you know, and all those sorts of things. So I think in terms of career development, once you've got the tech project sorted, once you're happy that you've got to grips with all of the operational stuff, you then need to start moving into the softer stuff and the business partnering to start advancing your career that way. So again, a long answer to maybe a shorter question, but
1: hopefully that provides context and... It's ironic, right? I've just gotten recently into prompt engineering and it's, you know, they say be clear in your instruction to the large language model. And people might think clear is being concise. So shorter prompts, but it's not actually. The more detail you give, the more specificity, the more context you provide, the better the outputs. Hmm. So, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I can see that's probably where you're coming from. In terms of feeding more information to kind of provide more clarity, and yeah. that's how you need to speak to AI, I guess. Mm. Ask a better question, get, be- uh, get a better answer,
0: right? And, and the analogy I always use is, you wouldn't just give a person a sentence if you wanted them to do something for you. You provide context. You know, you you try and bring them up to speed with what you were trying to achieve. You know, you wouldn't just say, "Oh, go write a template for me." You know, so so that context is important. The only thing that I would say though is when AI or generative AI was first released, people, a lot of people got into prompt engineering quite quickly because everybody was saying, Oh, you know, prompt engineering is the new skill. And, you know, basically, you know, you're not going to have a career unless you can become a decent prompt engineer. And I've always been a bit skeptical of that because I kind of knew from the start this was a journey, right? You know, and to have to give an AI context, you know, about what you were trying to achieve every time you entered a prompt is just a completely unworkable way of carrying out your day-to-day because I don't want to have to give a massive prompt every time I want an instruction to be carried out. So the first way that that was made easier was with the custom instructions that OpenAI released. I don't know whether you've played with them, but if you go into the settings, you can enter a custom instruction. You can say, what do you want the AI to know about you and how do you want it to respond? And that's that base level of providing context so that you don't have to give a paragraph for where you're coming from and where you want to go. I think we're going to see an evolution of that to the point where we're not giving context anymore. We're instead giving outcomes. So we're now moving into the category of agents whereby you can mm-hmm. give just an end result and then they can prompt themselves. We're still a way off with that. You know, agent GPT was the first iteration, but it was buggy, got confused, and there's not been much progress since, unfortunately. But coming back to what you're saying there about clarity of prompt yes that's very important but not to the point where you've got an a4 page worth of mega prompt because we've still got to remember that these models still only have a limited window for how much information they can process at one time now they're getting better and the windows for how much information they can understand are better so i'll use an example claude 2.1 which is now only available in the paid version of claude it's one that i've been weighing against the other large language models on the basis that if it's got a really big token window, it must be able to understand really complex prompts better than the equivalent language model with a shorter token window. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case. You know, Claude 2.1, and again, nothing against Anthropic, but for the use cases that I've experimented with, is actually one of the worst performers, even though the token window is so much larger. Now, I don't know why that is, but the responses are still really poor. So my recommendation is, yes, Build your prompt, you know, as, as big as you want it to be, but then maybe chunk it up. And I and I did a LinkedIn post about this, right? And and I and I'll use an example. So if I just get up my notes from this comparison that I've been doing, I'm not, not going to share my screen, but I'll just give you the, the three parts a prompt that I've been using to test, you know, the um the forecasting piece, you know, so producing mm-hmm. Python code. So it's split into three four parts actually because I want it to give me support as somebody who doesn't know code. Yeah. So the first part of the prompt is, act as a Python coder who works closely with finance teams. I'm starting from scratch using Google uh, Google Colab, but I'm a novice, so please provide easy-to-understand instructions. And then the end of that first prompt is, please confirm that you understand these instructions. And then immediately you've got that context embedded, and the response that you should get is, hopefully, yes, I understand the instructions. What do you want me to do next? The second part is then giving an example of the data and then saying, generate the code as well as a simple visualization. Yeah. So mm. it's the, the example data, not all of it for data security reasons, we don't want to actually give it our data, but we can give it the format. Yeah. Because once it knows the format, it can then generate the code that we can use with a much larger data set that isn't anonymized that we can mm. then put in Google Colab. So that's the second part of the prompt. The, the, the third part is, I want the visualization. The visualization to show the forecast in orange and then the fourth part of the prompt is i want to download the forecast in excel yeah if we'd asked mm. all of those component elements as one prompt you're increasing the chances of the language model getting confused and not knowing what to prioritize yeah and, and i've found this one i've been experimenting with creating gpts you know the bots with certain purposes Mm. So, one example um, that I tried to do is taking transcribed notes from a from a recording, and then having the AI pull out the tasks, the content ideas, certain parts of a newsletter that I dictated. So within that one bot, I was basically giving it three different instructions and the output that I got from it was very, very poor because it was, it was getting confused, right? Well, am I, am I pulling out tasks? Yeah. Uh, Am I generating content ideas? Do you see what I mean? So you can very quickly trip up these models if you're trying to engineer multiple outcomes into a single prompt. So chunk it up, simplify it and try and actually have a conversation with it as opposed to trying to get it right first time.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, and you know, that's the element of supervisation through the process and overseeing the quality without committing too much up front mm-hmm. and expecting that one shot to give you hit the target first time.
0: Yeah, because otherwise you'll get into the rabbit hole that I've got down to loads of times, whereby you're trying to re engineer that first prompt. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. sure you found it as well, right? Mega prompt, not given my output, right? What do I need to change in the prompt? But that's the wrong way of looking at things. The right way to look at things is, right, well, I know what output I want to create. How can I shorten this and chunk it up into different stages of a conversation in the same way that I'd have different stages of conversation with a human to produce better outputs?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I think you, and I've done it, I've tried to do something with a book summary Mm -hmm. to create something, and it didn't, Needless to say, the result was mindless verbiage, uh, which is not what I was aiming for, unfortunately. But it was good.
0: What What were you aiming for?
1: I was looking to take some insights from a PDF and turn it into a playbook. So, effectively, some form of strategy document, but it didn't really, I, I couldn't. I couldn't produce something that was usable, at least not without just redoing it all myself.
0: Mm. And that's and, and it's exactly the same before AI existed. You know, people trying to automate processes would have been quicker if they'd not tried to automate it. Yeah, <laughs> but the but the document analysis. I'm sorry to cut across you, is still a really tricky category because the difficulty we have at the moment is. Large language models, they don't see text in the same way as we do. They don't really see it at all unless you're using a multimodal model like a a BARD or a ChatGPT Pro. But they won't see things in order. So I remember when I was first playing around with document recognition and I was testing a long PDF by asking the model, tell me what the last line of this PDF is. It couldn't do it because it didn't understand the order. Yeah. So what the model will try and do is it will try and take your prompt and it will try and pick out almost randomly the areas of the document that are most relevant to the prompt. yeah. But therein lies the difficulty because you do end up with something that is unstructured. yeah. And that's mm-hmm. where training comes in, right? And that's where we start moving into these narrow use cases that I mentioned earlier. Because using something like a, a Humata or a Petal or something that is developed specifically for document Q&A is going to be better than a general model like a ChatGPT Pro or a Bard, that isn't going to be optimized for that particular use case. Yeah, you know, what what model did you did you try and use for the document? Was it ChatGPT or was it something different? It was three point five Turbo. Right. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Fine. I didn't know you could upload documents to three point five. or Were you using it by the API?
1: I'm using another tool, proprietary right. tool. I was testing for a founder. <laughs> okay. So no, that's yeah.
0: that's interesting. So but uh, I mean three point five is still a really good model. Mm. Yeah. But as I say, it's you know that I think the, the difficulty you ran into there is you know you're almost using like uh an unoptimized model to try and achieve a specific end without it being trained for that purpose.
1: I got crazy ambitious and I was literally trying to break it, which I did. So <laughs> job done, you know. <laughs> At least so. you
0: can say you've done that. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. but that's
1: like my tester how on and just going mad you know go nuts all right you ask for it <laughs> well again you, you don't have to sound here but if you want to if you want to send
0: me the the document and the the output you're trying to get i've got claw 2.1 for the next month i'm not going to keep it mm. say majority of times the output's not good but i've not tested it with a large document yet that's that's next on my list but with a 2000 a 200k token window or whatever the correct terminology is Mm. it's meant to be really good at processing those those big documents so yeah if if you do want to see what a optimized model could produce as an output we can we can do a bit of an experiment but we can can take that offline if you like
1: yeah yeah, let's let's uh, let's carry on after after this uh, episode thanks (laughs) very good brilliant and i guess beyond the technical challenges there's also things like the risks and ethical considerations so have you what besides obviously the data protection obviously you don't want to as samsung did upload um proprietary information that should be you know never go beyond the corporate domain and firewall have you seen any other any other things that have added extra caution when thinking about implementing ai in finance and besides obviously not loading public or pii into chat gpt how do you think companies should address these when considering their implementation strategy yeah i think i think data is now the obvious one
0: because it's it's been outlined as a cause of concern right from the very beginning especially because open ai started as an open source model where they very publicly said the data is being used to train the model so mm. everybody's saying oh we don't want our data used to, to train the model uh, may, may, i don't want to speak out of turn here because obviously i'm a, I'm a big advocate of data privacy especially sensitive information but i probably look at my android phone and the amount of data points that google's got on me <laughs> Do, yeah. do you know what I mean? They probably know more about me than OpenAI does. Anyway, let's not go down that, that rabbit hole. But yeah, so so data obviously, you know, cause a concern. As I mentioned previously, if you are using data, anonymize it and give the format and then tap, take the output, whether it's code or whether it's a template or whatever, and move it into a private environment. Yeah. So, so the trick is using AI on non-sensitive data to provide the framework of the output that you want to produce and then move it into an environment that's that's safe. Yeah. So Christian Martinez, who I always talk about, absolutely amazing, finance automation manager at Kraft Heinz. He was one of the first to say, just use something like Google Colab, grab the code that the AI has produced for you, and then run it there, as opposed to actually getting the AI to run the code and having to use your data, you yeah, know, because you can protect your data within Go- Google Colab that's separate to the AI platform. So so that's one consideration there. I think Everybody got really excited when OpenAI produced ChatGPT Enterprise mm. because that is the private version of the platform that you can actually have within your own tenant. So it's not on a public platform shared by others. That's that's your own version of it. Mm. I've I've never figured out what the price of it is, but it's similar to it's probably similar to the Microsoft Copilot, whereby at the moment you can probably only have it if you've got X amount of thousands of seats. You know, so, so I don't think that's yet accessible to smaller businesses. So we're just going to have to keep making sure that we're diligent with it, with our data up until the point where the price point for these private platforms becomes more digestible. So, so that's one piece around, around data. Even when I start doing sort of context, you know, using custom instructions or, or building bots or whatever, I still don't talk to the AI as if it's me. And maybe that's just a bit of paranoia, but I'll always say imagine you are coaching an individual who, yeah. And I don't give company information. I, I might give challenges, yeah. And I might give a little bit of data, but obviously you no know, customer, suppliers, or employee information referenced in that. But that makes me more comfortable that. You know, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody or any anything in particular from a from a data security perspective. But if we move away from data, I'd say there's a couple of other issues that we'll we'll run into with the use of AI. Again, a lot of it is out of our hands, but some of it is within our control. And one element piqued my interest. It was actually a comment on a post that I did about Microsoft Copilot, and I can't remember who the individual was. If if I would, I'd, I'd give them a shout out. But they quite rightly pointed to over-reliance on AI for junior team members that might not be as savvy as people with 10 years' worth of experience. Mm. Because they, growing up with it, will have more trust in an AI and will be less skeptical of the output than somebody who's been around the houses and has seen incorrect responses a million times. So I think one of the problems is going to be that training piece. You know, how, how do you have your team use AI effectively without them just blind blindly trusting the response they're getting from the AI? Yeah. yeah. Um, human validation is still very important, you know, especially if it needs to meet, you know, brand guidelines for your organization or company policy and all of that sort of stuff. You know, you don't just want people copying and pasting the output from an AI, either to be something that's incorrect or not within policy so that's one issue i think training is going to become more and more important i think tools are going to become easier to use but i think training is still going to be really important and then the other piece and this is the piece that is out of our control because of course training our employees and training them on how to use ai and giving them best practices is within our control how the ai is trained is outside of our control. If we're using a, a mainstream AI, and unless we've got a developer that is actually training the AI ourselves, <laughs> many companies have that luxury, right? Mm. We're relying on the way that these language models have been trained. And the example I'll give isn't with text generation or, or some of the use cases we've spoken about today, it's actually image generation. Yeah. So you've heard of mid-journey, right? Yeah, I've told the story before about how I produced a presentation 90% with AI, even the images using mid-journey to, to basically generate pictures of offices and, and all of that sort of stuff. But I was at a Microsoft event last year and they had a speaker there. She was sort of a, a tech journalist. I can't remember what her official title was. I couldn't find her on LinkedIn, which I was really annoyed about. I think that's maybe just a, a personal choice of hers but she gave a bit of a history of of AI, but then she also moved into the territory of biases within language models. Mm. And she generated some images using mid journey just to put this to the test a little bit. So she, without doing any clever things with prompts, just said simple stuff like generate an image of a CEO Mm. and it, produced four pictures of a man with slick hair and sunglasses on, you know, in a leather tilt and swivel, you know. Obviously male. Yeah. And Mm. good-looking male. Yeah. Super cool, good-looking male, right? With a very basic report, you know, just generate a picture of a CEO. And then she said, generate a picture of a nurse. And it produced a, a picture of a lady. But what was more interesting actually was the way that AI just by default will generate a picture of a woman and again Mm -hmm. without any sort of you know sexist or you know because you know no issue who wants to identify with who i'm not sexist you know i'm all for equal roles and all of that sort of stuff but the ai generated prompt was of a beautiful woman like she she was stunning because i don't know why but whatever it's trying to do is produce whatever is the best impression or the inverted commas best impression of a woman right so perfectly symmetrical Mm. face flowing blonde or ginger hair or whatever it happened to be so she then went on to the next stage of trying to see whether she could even the balance a little bit to say right well let's let's try and produce what an, an average woman would look like right and it still produced something stunningly beautiful right so she tried something like um, show me a picture of um like a, a a tired a tired woman or something like that and maybe there was a, a few hairs out of place but still stunningly beautiful right the only point at which the output changed is when she actually went ahead and said produce a picture of an ugly woman mm-hmm. and it produced gargoyles like the sort of images that you'd seen from a horror film like they, they didn't even really look human but they all looked incredibly old right <laughs> So, so, so there, there was no yeah. middle ground either yeah. you had an ai producing a, a stunningly beautiful woman or something from a horror show but it's also interesting that it attributed ugly to old So, mm. so and, and it's a long long way of saying that there are obviously inherent biases in the way that these ais produce results but that all comes down to the way that they're, they're trained because mm. again Taking any sort of sexist, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to labor the point, right? But if you looked over all of the data from the past, you know, you would probably see a trend that in the majority of instances a nurse is a woman. Yeah, it's not the case anymore. But historically, if you look at all of the data, there's probably more data to, to suggest that a nurse is a woman than a nurse is a man, right? But that comes down to the training. Yeah, because all the AI is doing is saying, "My data shows that when somebody asks me this, I'm giving this output." Coming back to that predicted test, the text thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen the film um, Meet the Fockers? Have you ever seen uh, it? ages
1: ago? That's yeah.
0: such an old film. Yeah, it's, it's it's an old film, but I always remember a moment in that, and again, it's it's probably poo-pooed now. But and there's a there's a moment in it where Robert De Niro is training the kids. yeah, uh, training the kids because he wanted him to be a, a little genius. Um, mm. And he had all of these prompt cards, you know, to get him to do sign language and all of that sort of stuff. And anyway, Gaylord Fokker, which is obviously a very clever <laughs> play on words, um, is a male nurse in it. And he gets a bit of jip for it, but he walks into the room when Robert De Niro is chaining, training the, the toddler. And he says to the toddler, Oh, um, you remember Greg, He's what we discussed, right? And he held up a card of a nurse, which was a lady nurse on a card. And the kid laughed because he was a male. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's just an, it's another <laughs> example of those stereotypes being built into historic data. So I think as much as we can argue against all of the biases and all of the ways that, you know, these AIs produce their output, but we've got to look at the training and say, right, well, actually, if we're training them on data that is biased, it's not necessarily the AI that's biased, it's the data that they've been trained with. And that's why I say it's out of our control, you know, because if we are trying to be elaborate with our prompts to try and produce an unbiased result, you know, we are trying to we're trying to correct a bias and we shouldn't be having to do that. You know, we shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to be saying stuff like, Oh, you know, produce me an image of an average looking woman. You see what I mean? We should be able to Mm -hmm. just prompt to say, produce me a picture of a woman. And there should be variances there, you know, big, small, you know, all all of these sorts of things. And I don't know where that's going to go, you know? Mm -hmm. And it comes back to that training piece as well, because somebody with 10 years of experience in finance is going to know whether a biased answer is given about a certain, well, I can't think of an example, but you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. somebody younger that doesn't have that experience isn't going to necessarily spot when something is, you know, weighted in one direction over the other. So I think that's going to be mm. the other challenge, but sorry, it's a, it's a really long answer, but one that worth sharing, I think.
1: Absolutely. And uh, it, it's very thought provoking. Mm. Seriously, you should, if you haven't already, I would definitely suggest maybe putting that online, which comes segues nicely into my next question about your LinkedIn growth and podcasting growth, which has been really impressive, my friend. So you I really liked your last post, which said you grew your podcasting audience by, was it 999%? (laughs) That is impressive, I must admit. And also you've been growing your audience steadily on LinkedIn, but at a very good rate. And Mm. I guess as a growing influencer on those platforms, what strategies have you used to engage and educate your audience about AI and finance? So thank you for the compliments. So
0: just uh, on the podcast, and I said it in the post, 999% was a bit skewed because technically last year was the first full year that I've been doing the the podcast, right? I I think the first episode was released something like June, 2022 or something like that. So I only had six months in 2022 and then 12 months in 2023. So the the figures were gonna be bigger. Plus when you are starting from a follower (laughs) (laughs) and you get to 500 followers, then of course the numbers are gonna be big, right? So the more useful metrics for me on that were number of minutes produced, for example, So the number of recorded minutes increased five hundred percent. Yeah. So that is a metric that will be more useful going into next year in terms of how many guests have I managed to to bring on, what's the quality of the conversation been, how long has the conversation gone on for? So so I think the stats in 2024 will be more useful this year than than last year's stats. So so I just I just wanted to to say that. But I think from a from a podcasting angle, as I mentioned previously, it was to scratch my own itch and say, right, well, I've still so much to learn. And the best way that you can learn is from people that know more than, than you do. And everybody knows more than you do in one area. Yeah. Which is why people need to not like self-deprecate and say, you know, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not as good as you because everybody's an expert in one area. They might just not know it yet. Yeah. And that's what I'd encourage everybody to look into. You know, where are you? And this is an Alex hormosey Alex Hormosey, massive entrepreneur now. Um, he says you need to be one of zero. Yeah, so what's what's the one thing that you have that nobody else does? What's the one thing that you can talk about that nobody else can? And if you can't do that, what's the one thing that you can talk about better than somebody else? You know, so, so, so thinking in those terms. But it ties to a question about building that and producing content that strikes a chord with the people that I work with every day. Now, I'll be brutally honest and say, initially, when I started off, I just wanted a big following because I wanted to come across as more credible with my customers, you know, and and I wanted to, it was a bit of an ego trip, I guess, you know, how can I build a personal brand so I'm recognized for something? So it started off as a bit of a selfish pursuit and a bit of an addiction, actually, yeah. because when you get a few hundred likes on a post and you see the impressions, then you get all the do- the dopamine and you think, oh my God, I'm, I'm amazing, you know, and all of these sorts of things. But when I looked back over it, I was doing a really good job of analyzing LinkedIn seeing what similar posts were performing well and then trying to emulate that to get on sort of the the algorithmic wave yeah and that's that's what's so difficult about these platforms is to an extent you've got no control over the reach because the platform will decide according to the algorithm how many people it's put in front of yeah, yeah. so I had some really good successes with a couple of posts that probably got me most of my following so so there's there's a couple of examples um so there was a phase on linkedin where people would do the uh, you know the free training course posts yeah, and yeah, they, yeah they all went viral yeah so that was that was one of my first viral posts um almost got i think got almost a quarter of a million impressions um but not one of my posts has ever got more than a thousand likes i think that one got to 999 you know i was a bit annoyed about that but it's 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 all perspective isn't it you know some people would be overjoyed to get you know 20 likes do you you see what i mean so that's all a matter of perspective so that's initially how it started you know and i remember getting to to ten thousand followers and thinking wow you know I, i can't believe that i've done that but Getting to 10, and people probably kicked me for saying this, wasn't actually that difficult getting to 10,000 followers because I had, coming from a sales background, I, I think I started with maybe 2,500 two connections. They weren't technically yeah. followers. They were just people that I connected with. So in reality, I only needed to find seven and a half to, to get to 10. Getting to 20 was a lot more difficult, and now getting to 22 seems like it's never going to happen because of those algorithmic changes, mm-hmm. and also because I've decided... That I want to produce less content that serves an algorithm, and I want to produce more content that's useful. So more recently, I've got back to doing more text-heavy posts. Yeah. So from a from a personal development point of view, I'm keen on improving my writing. You know, because I know that if I'm getting a good response from a text-only post, if I then do an iteration of that in the future, you know, there's a graphic, for example that I'm going to get a better response because that base text post like performed really, really well. you know. And, and you've got to, again, you do have to, this is where it gets past the algorithm because the algorithm can serve your content to other people, but it can't tell people whether to click the see more. You know, the, the mm-hmm. button underneath the hook that says, yeah, show me this full post It's entirely down to you to make that first line so sexy and so clickable that people then digest the rest of the content. Yeah, so people talk about hook writing and all that sort of stuff, and it's what I'm trying to get better with. But again, I use AI for that. You know, I don't get AI to generate my posts, but I look at what's performing well, and then I get AI to produce inspiration based on other high-performing hooks that then might be relevant to me. And then I take that inspiration and then I distill it into my own post. And again, it just speeds up that workflow as opposed to me having to do all of those iterations myself, right? So it's speed of output rather than quality of output that I'm using the AI to produce for me there. But we'll have to see how it goes because coming back to the old, I think it's Seth Godin, I can't remember if it was 500 or 5,000 true fans. Like, mm. if you've got, you know, a small group of people that you can genuinely help, then you're, you're set for life, right? You know, mm. and this is where we go from vanity metrics to actual tangible metrics, right? Because mm. getting to 100,000 followers, 500,000 followers, yeah, it's great, you know, but what element is vanity over utility? You know, because people following you is an indication of whether they'd likely engage in a real life conversation with you, whether they'd actually sub- subscribe to your newsletter or not, whether they'd actually subscribe to your podcast. So I think this year, I'm going to try and do more analysis around not just the impressions and the likes and the engagement, but is actually on the output of who am I getting signed up to the newsletter that I can help offline you know, who can I get following the podcast that gets the advantage of my experience and the other podcast guests that I have, right? Mm. And that post that you mentioned about the Spotify stats, that's a good example because it's not got a huge amount of impressions. I mean, I think looking at this morning, it was about 7,500, which again, compared to, to some, that's a lot of impressions, right? But the, the real measure was how many people actually went and followed the podcast from the link that was in the bottom of that. And a lot of people actually did. Yeah, So yesterday mm. I was at 490 subscribers on Spotify and now 510, you know, so that post produced 20 Spotify followers to me, that's the real gauge, of a successful post. It's the, how do you inspire action off the back of it to the mm. point where you can, you can help people offline because an email list will last forever. You know, followers on a social media platform might not, people might get disinterested in LinkedIn. Everybody might move to X, which is a different story because I'm yet to master the whole sort of Twitter short post thing, maybe in the future, but right now it's it's more about LinkedIn. So I've rambled a little bit there, Dante, but I suppose I've managed to build a following by copying what works, but now I'm less bothered about the size of the following. I'm more bothered about the outcomes of the content I'm posting as a gauge for how much it's helping people.
1: No, that's a really great answer and very authentic. So thank you, Adam. And to be fair, I would love 100 likes on one of my posts. I haven't even hit that mark yet. But for me, it's not about that. It's about sharing. If you impact some people and I get a few likes, I'm okay with that. If I get no likes, fair enough. I can always chalk it up to the algorithm and I try to keep off it. The main thing is don't get obsessed because, the biggest, the biggest challenge is avoiding scroll, doom scrolling on mm. LinkedIn and having it waste your time when you could be learning a skill, mm. getting on with things that will move you forward as a person, as a professional. So,
0: and, and you're dead right because I could spend my time trying to learn how to master the algorithm to the point where I do have a million followers or whatever it happens to be. But is it the best use of my time? Because all that time that I've spent in trying to build those vanity metrics could be time that I'm using elsewhere to produce another podcast episode or to think about asking better questions on a podcast. And and it's interesting actually in terms of validation because historically for me, especially with the viral posts, there was likes and comments and tagging and resharing and all of that sort of stuff. But the volume of commentary and actual messages from people to say, that's, that's really useful. Can you help me with this? Or, you know, I I found your post really interesting. Can you help me with that? Very low. Whereas the following that I have for the podcast is, is tiny in theory in comparison to my LinkedIn following, right? You know, 500 Spotify subscribers compared to, you know, almost 22,000 LinkedIn subscribers. I've had more people approach me off the back of the podcast to say, love the podcast, keep what you're doing. Than I have from all of those followers on LinkedIn. Yeah. So again, you know, you've got to think about these things objectively. You know, what are the platforms that are actually helping people. What feedback can you get? And again, that's another challenge that I've got at the moment is, you know, the the newsletters now are coming up to I think a thousand and eighty subscribers or something like that. So it's mm-hmm. so tiny. You know, Nicola's got fifty oana Joanna's got probably thirty five thousand now. You know, so so they're they're big newsletters, right? But slowly but surely, I'm getting more replies to the newsletter saying that was really good. You know, mm. I I even had a message from one of the newsletter subscribers actually contributing to the next newsletter mm. because I've started doing sort of feature prompts and feature bots and all of that sort of stuff. Um, somebody replied to say, "Oh, by the way, you know, check these out. You know, I think you might find these interesting." You know, so again, it's it's the medium that has the most impact that you need to be focusing on. Yeah. So anyway, I'll I'll stop talking now. <laughs>
1: No, no, you're fine and um uh, I just realized you've been so generous with your time and I'm just hogging it all so Not at I, all. I yeah, but thanks Adam. It's it's been great and um I guess I've got a few more questions just to wrap up. What emerging trends in finance technology excite you the most and how do you see them shaping the future of the industry? Wow. So, what excites me the
0: most how am I seeing them shape the future? So I think, personally, the most exciting for me, and this relates to finance not just finance, but, but other areas, is the concept of those AI co-pilots. Mm. If, they, if they can be done well, you know, and, and as loads of people have always said to me, and I always say, nobody ever complained about having more time. Yeah. So, so there's an exercise for me in the same way that I recommended earlier to go through all the stuff that I do and start figuring out, you know, how do I have more co-pilots, you know, whether it's an outsourced person or, or an AI tool that, that I use. Right. And one example of that for podcasts, I don't know whether I mentioned it to you before, podium.page. That is an AI that's optimized for podcasts. It'll do transcript, but then they've got P- podium GPT now that you can use to generate URLs of tech that's mentioned, you know, and all of that sort of stuff. So that's that's a fit for purpose, you know, that I'm quite excited about because it saves me hours of having to generate show notes and transcripts. You know, so, so that that's one example. But I guess in the finance space, you know, when Copilot's finally released to smaller companies, that's exciting because you'll have an assistant alongside all of the documentation that you produce every day, whether it's Word, PowerPoint, Excel. I've had demonstrations of people taking a PowerPoint presentation, a non-technical document, and having Copilot automatically format that into a Word document that's a, a technical specification for a project. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the really exciting stuff. If we move outside, I guess, the Microsoft and the Copiloty stuff and the ChatGPT stuff, the other thing that excites me is how some of these other platforms start building AI into their platforms without us knowing about it. So there's a platform I've seen recently called pyramid, which is Mm -hmm. a data analysis platform. It's one that I've not heard of before, but it's quite exciting. So it will take multiple data sources and it will use AI to support the production of visuals, which again, isn't, isn't anything particularly new, right? But it will then go a step further and work that data into a presentable format for you to the point where you can interact on the fly. And again, it's, it's, it's nothing that's particularly new because you could do that with a combination of tools, but having everything in one platform whereby you can take the data, produce the visualizations and then turn it into a presentation that is not just a presentation, but also interactive when you can change the variables, that then ties into that business partnering piece, right? Mm. Because we've automated the data, we've automated the production of the visuals. Now our job is to tell the story. It's to relay that data and to get everybody involved. You know, and to and to really start that discussion. So that's, you know, where I'm seeing it headed, because the second part of your question was what does the future look like? I think it's exactly that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I I mentioned previously as well that I think we're gonna have the the concept of the AI agents, whereby mm-hmm. they'll start acting more as humans. So I experimented with this previously. I've used the example before. But when Agent GPT was first released, it was advertised as an autonomous agent whereby you just give it a goal and then it will prompt itself until it's achieved that goal. I asked it to find the best price of a Mercedes because I had a friend that was, was looking for one just as an experiment. And it did an okay job. But it was very evident that it was buggy, kept looping, kept getting confused and all that sort of stuff. But I think if somebody masters being able to work from an outcome backwards rather than us having to prompt at the beginning to try and get towards that outcome. I think that's going to be a bit of a game changer there. Then there's an argument to say, well, well are we then in the territory of artificial general intelligence? I think we're probably getting there, but who knows? Yeah. So, so short term, I think some of the tools that I mentioned there, augmenting what you do on a day-to-day basis so that you can start shifting your value towards more of that building influence and winning hearts and minds. But then I think in the future, it will get to the point where AI start acting like people that you would outsource.
1: Brilliant. And do you have a personal mantra or philosophy that guides your professional decisions and innovations?
0: Decisions and innovations? I don't think that I've ever thought in terms of mantras the the one that i'm trying to so this isn't one that i've committed to heart yet but one that i'm trying to live more by is the concept of leverage mm. archimedes right you know give give mm-hmm. me a lever long enough on a platform and i can i can move the earth yeah, yeah. but i'm trying to work a, a mantra that says always try and find the highest leverage activity Mm-hmm. And and I am not there yet. Technology is leverage, you know. So I mentioned stuff like like Podium, those narrow use cases. You know, chat gpt Just even mm-hmm. if, if using it for general purposes, that's that's leverage. But how can I take that to the next level? And it comes back mm-hmm. to what I was saying previously. You know, leverage comes in the form of technology, people, or money. <laughs> <laughs> I am not a millionaire, right? You know, I've still got a day job. You know, yeah. you know, and some of these advanced tools and some of your ability to outsource work. Money is a prerequisite,
1: mm.
0: but you've got to start somewhere, right? So, so I do work with an outsourced individual via Upwork, which you probably mm. probably heard of, right? F- freelancing yeah. platform. So he's helped me start historically kind of with data inputs, you know, helping draft newsletters and, and all that sort of stuff, you know. So that that's kind of level one if we think of it in terms of the game. But mm. as I'm able to outsource, as I get more money, you know, whether it's to a person or an AI. I'm going to try and look for those high leverage activities. And again, you can use AI to to, to to get to that, right? You know, from all my tasks, which is the highest leverage activities that's going to get the majority of my output? It ties to eighty twenty, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly the same premise. Um, a, another really good book, um, The One Thing, can't remember the orders, the authors, but what is the one thing that you can do that makes everything else easier or irrelevant? Yeah, and it all comes down to, to leverage right what's what's the lead domino so i'm going to try and think more in those terms whether it's a work in terms of you know reporting that i do with the team and all that sort of stuff what's the highest leverage activity that i can do to make sure that we're making the best possible decisions and then when it comes to stuff like you know podcasting and newsletters you know what is the best title format to increase newsletter open rates as much as possible you know? Um, What is the highest leverage LinkedIn hook that's going to give the most Mm -hmm. subscribers or podcast followers, you know, and and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to try and think more in those terms, but yeah, you know, what's high leverage. What's the one thing that I can do to make things easier or relevant.
1: Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess what's next for Adam, any upcoming projects or goals you're particularly excited about? Uh, I get excited about a lot of stuff, you
0: know, and, and this, this is maybe where I struggle a little bit because it's very easy being an introvert just to keep myself to myself and experiment, you know, and delve into all of these tools and do all of this sort of stuff. I think next for me is actually realizing it and making it more useful. So I mentioned the the AI finance club previously, Mm -hmm. so that's a, a little project that I guess goes hand in hand with my own newsletter it's more community focused rather than my, my own following that's that's something that i'm working on at the moment but you know time time is the biggest limitation at the at the moment you know when you've got a lot of plates to spin you've got to pick your battles you know mm-hmm. so i think for me consistency and focusing on i guess quality over quantity
1: is probably something that is next for me in 2024 Brilliant. And it's all been high quality from what I've seen. But as you say, the leverage will probably be the game changer for you next year. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, if, if I can focus on the 20% of stuff that produces the best results, then it's just how does that scale? Right. Mm. You know, and then the, there's two decisions to make, right? You know, either you, spec- you spend less time, and you get the same output. Yeah. Or mm. you increase your level of activity and then produce exponentially better results. Mm, yeah, but mm. it's, it's always a balancing act right because yeah. you know with with two kids you know a day job you know all, all of that sort of stuff you know it's you know, the question is where where do you spend your time and you know you mm. don't get your time back do you so there's yeah. lots of questions often more questions than answers but hey ho,
1: yeah that's always uh always going to be the uh the trade-off right but um as long as you've got your priorities in order and you know spending christmas with a family has to be you know your top priority in this time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, and it was a it was a great Christmas. You know, yeah, the I mean I, Isaac's three now, so he gets it. Roman, he's eighteen months, so he just pulls decorations off the Christmas tree, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make it
1: any less special. So no, it's it was good. Yeah, it was a good Christmas. Wonderful, Adam. It's been a great pleasure having with you with us today. And I really loved your insights into the music, AI and finance, which have not only been enlightening, but also inspiring and thought provoking as well. So if any of my listeners would like to reach out to you, where can they best connect with you online? So LinkedIn is is the best place. Um, just search Adam Shilton,
0: S-H-I-L-T-O-N. I think um, the official handle is Adam Shilton Tech. T-E-C-H. So I think it's LinkedIn forward slash in forward slash Adam Shilton tech if you want the full URL, but you should just be able to search me. There is another Adam Shilton who I think works for, I can't remember, I think he works for design in Starbucks or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's not It's not that Adam Shilton, it's the other Adam Shilton. <laughs> And then the website, so www.techforfinance.com, is it's only a card, single page. It directs to the newsletter site, which is newsletter.techforfinance.com. Mm-hmm. So subscribe there, and as I mentioned previously, you know you can you can reply to the newsletter or you can you can email me. No issues there. So that's where to find me.
1: Brilliant. And I'll make sure the links are in the show notes for the avoidance of any misunderstandings or doubts or (laughs) accidentally following that guy from Starbucks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the one with the, with the glasses and beard. (laughs) Brilliant.
1: And uh, yeah, thanks again, the time and insights you've shared. I look forward to seeing your continued impact in the world of finance technology and beyond, Adam. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure.
0: Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Haley and John Byrne.